All right. Hello, everybody. We are here today with Nathan Berry, the author of Authority and the founder of ConvertKit. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Can you give a little quick overview of ConvertKit, how it came about, and where you are now? Yeah, so ConvertKit's an email marketing platform for professional bloggers. So you could think of it as the power of Infusionsoft, but easier to use than MailChimp. So kind of having that hybrid world of great automation uh, and sophisticated features, but pared down to exactly what you know bloggers and content creators need. Um, so as far as where we're at now, we're at 25 full-time employees, um, been at it for almost four years now, and uh, hopefully this week we'll cross 500,000 in monthly recurring revenue. Nice. So I'm trying to get that in right before the end of the year. So. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the early days, you know, my background is in blogging and, uh, and then writing books. So, or, and even before that, my background's in user experience design. And so I wrote a couple of books and was surprised to learn that email marketing was the most powerful way to sell those books. And so those books were self-published, uh, sold on my site and, uh, you know, they did great. And I expected Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all these hot, sexy new platforms to drive the revenue. And it just wasn't the case. Like email was uh, where the sales happened. And I told that to friends who were, you know, had been in marketing for a long time. And they were like, uh-huh. Like we've known this since <laughs> 2002. Like, good job. Welcome to the party. I thought you were said you knew what you're doing with marketing. Um, and so I just kind of became obsessed with email marketing and all the best practices. But I was using MailChimp at the time. And every time I went to implement a best practice, it was just frustrating. Yeah. Like I felt like I was fighting against the tool. Rather than someone saying, you know, hey, we know the best practices and we built a tool with those in mind. And so like best practices by default. And so I'd spend all this time writing books and I wanted to get back into software because uh, that's where my roots are. And so I thought, OK, I'm going to start a SaaS application. Uh, let's <laughs> let's dive into that world. And uh, that ended up being ConvertKit. Um, and that was started January 1st, 2013. Right on. So obviously you've had some great success lately. ConvertKit's really taken off, but it wasn't like that all of the time. When it first launched, um, it was more of a struggle and it took some time for it to really get traction. Can you, I guess, talk a little bit about those early days and kind of the, the stepping stones that got you to the point where it took off? Yeah, so I actually didn't start with the idea of I want to start an email marketing company. I started with the idea of I want to start a SaaS company. Who cares what it is? <laughs> you know, I just want to make this switch from ebooks and you know those that category of digital products to software, and mainly for the recurring revenue. Um, call it seventy percent because I wanted recurring revenue, and thirty percent because I wanted a new challenge. Um, and so I actually started something that I called the web app challenge and I did it publicly on my blog and you can still go back and read yeah. the blog posts. And I just said, Hey, my goal is to go from, you know, today, which was actually December 31st, 2012. I, I gave myself a day early to, to start the challenge. And my goal is to go from, from today of not having an idea or even knowing what I'm going to build to six months from now, having a SaaS app, making 5,000 a month in recurring revenue. And I knew it would be hard, but I'd just come off some really successful ebook launches. And so I seriously underestimated the difficulty of pulling that off. 
Because in a book launch, I could do $25,000 in a day, um, you know, and like $50,000 in a month. And so I thought, like, how hard could it be to get 5000 in recurring revenue? Uh, turns out very hard. <laughs> and so, you know, I but I was naive and I embarked on this challenge. And partway through, you know, like in the first week or so, I decided that, con, you know, ConvertKit, an email marketing platform, was what I was going to build. Um when the other requirement was that I could only put in $5,000 of my own money. And the reason for that was I'd seen lots of people come off one success and have money and then pour all of that into the next thing. And yeah. they didn't actually have to talk to customers because they didn't need money in the short term. And I didn't want to take $50,000 or potentially more that I just made over here and squander it all in like experimenting with software, especially because it's so easy to do. So my rule was that other than that five grand, it had to be customer funded through pre-sales because I figured then I have to talk to people. I have to get customers and I have to, like hopefully that'll help me find product market fit faster. Um, to fast forward a little bit over those six months, uh, we got to about $2,100 in MRR. So I, I mean, I think a reasonable goal would have been like 2,500 maybe to get to over that time period with my knowledge and expertise and capabilities. Um, and I tend to set decently big goals for myself and I usually hit them by about like hit right about the 50% mark. Um, so that was par for the course for me. Um, but then after that, like after that initial six months, uh, we didn't, we basically just maintained that 2,100 a month. And I would work on it, but it wasn't really growing. It's really hard to sell recurring versus selling like a one-off yeah. payment, especially when you're not you're not like, hey, buy an ebook, and someone's like, cool, I can own an unlimited number of ebooks. Whereas with an email marketing product, they're like, okay, is yours good enough that I should close down my Mailchimp account? Yeah, because I'm going to use one, and I might try out another at the same time, but there's no way I'm going to be using more than yeah. More than two for sure. Um, and so you're, it's really about you're getting someone to switch. Yeah. So that was a lot harder. Um, and then when it didn't grow further, I had a hard time continuing to pour a lot of time and effort into it because the, you know, the books and courses that I was selling were still doing well. Um, I'd pull in about 250,000 a year total from those. Um, and so with, like the same fixed amount of effort, like say whatever effort it took to make a thousand dollars with books and courses, like that same amount of effort applied to ConvertKit would like increase MRR by 50 bucks or something, you know? And so it was so hard to focus on the hard long-term revenue when there was easy short-term revenue. And so we effectively just stayed flat for, uh, after that, for the next year and a half or so after that for six months. Through all of that, did you ever consider just giving up on ConvertKit or just kind of letting it flounder on the side and focusing on the books? Or was it always, at some point, I'll figure it out, kind of optimism there? It was the, at some point, I'll figure it out, but it was really probably more of like a head in the sand, not make a decision, you know, this could still work, mm -hmm. rather than there being an actual uh, plan or how I'm going to make it work. You know, it's like sitting there and waiting for your software product to take off. 
and to go viral or something like that. Like something will happen. There will be some tipping point though. And if I just hold on long enough working on it 10 hours a week or something while doing one of the things, then at some point it'll work out. And that some point never came. How many different things would you say you tried and kind of what different things did you try during that time? Yeah. Um, it was probably like four or five different marketing strategies. I tried going after different audiences. I tried, um, making, and I actually gave a talk about this one. I tried making the way I sold ConvertKit more like the way you would sell an info product. So, mm -hmm. uh, like info products are often sold with an open and closed launch or a discount period for a certain time. So there's urgency. Um, they're often sold more upfront. So it's not a small recurring amount. It's more of a commitment. Um, and so I tried that with ConvertKit where I launched something called the ConvertKit Academy where I'd open up 10 slots a month and it was $300. So you're paying for a year of ConvertKit, uh, upfront and then it included all this training and all this help and, you know, and so I could do that launch and it, it worked okay. Um, but I mean the 10 slots a month, I set the number that low because that's all I thought I could sell. And there were months that I didn't even sell those 10. And, and then with the churn from other accounts dropping out and it just not being enough money put into it to make the product better. Like it was just in this awkward place where it, you couldn't really put more time into selling it because the product was mediocre um, and didn't have the features it needed. But also be because there weren't customers, then uh, you couldn't really, <laughs> there wasn't money to build out more functionality. Yeah. And so it just sat in this really awkward place. So, I mean, how hard is it to not just give up? Either not by necessarily shutting it down, but just saying, okay, at what point, you know, when you try that many different things and none of them are significantly changing the situation for you, after each one, was there a point where you were a little closer to just saying, all right, I, I picked the wrong thing, I'm chasing the wrong rabbits here, like, how did that play out? Yeah, I don't think I had that much clarity with it. <laughs> I think I, I was looking really short term and saying, oh, bummer, this isn't working. And I didn't really look at it holistically and say like, wow, I've worked on this for 18 months and this is where we're at. Yeah. Like I didn't have that approach to it. And maybe that's good. Um, well, no, it's not good actually because like that's how you can just coast on a project and be like, yeah, I'm working on this and we're making traction. But if you don't step back and look like, okay, this is where we're at. And like, and then really look at the amount of effort that you're putting in. Um, so for me, it, I didn't get that clarity until a conversation with Heaton Shaw from Kissmetrics and Crazy Egg and, a, a, you know, a bunch of other, uh, great SaaS companies. Um, and he and I were at a conference walking back from dinner and he just stopped and said like, look, Nathan, you should shut down ConvertKit. And I was like, uh, excuse me, what? <laughs> and he just said, yeah, you know, you're going to be successful at something. You've proved that with the books and you can build an audience and you can sell. Um, but you're, you know, a year and a half in with ConvertKit. It's not working. Like it's time to call it, shut it down, move on to the next thing because you're, you're crippling yourself effectively in, you know, having this project here that's not going anywhere. And it's time you place the bet and you put, put work in and it's time to call it, you know? Um, 
and then he just like started walking again. Uh, and so I was like, okay, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I like take a few quick steps to catch up with him again. And then as we're walking, he just says, or you can give it the time, money and attention it deserves and build it into something real. But this in between state where you're like, yeah, it's a side project. Uh, it might work. It might not. I'm trying these things. I'm putting, you know, like clearly that's not working. So you need to change something. And so that was really the shut it down or, or double down conversation. And so I think a lot of people with their side projects are probably in a similar place where maybe it gets to 500 a month of recurring revenue. And you're like, well, it's not worth focusing on yet. You know? Yeah. And if, if it's 500 a month quickly, then you're like, wow, this is exciting. But if, it, if you get to 500 a month over the course of a year, then you're actually in this really bad place where it's not a failure because you've got customers and they're happy, you know, but it's certainly not a success. And I think that's the worst thing that can happen. It's a really, really tough spot to be in. And that's for me, like with Sifter, it was those two years where I was still working and doing other stuff and Sifter wasn't making enough to support me. And I was constantly like, where can I cut costs so that I can afford to be on Sifter full time without needing to make other income. And that was probably the most stressful period. But then at the same time, if you quit too early and you don't have the runway or the savings and it's not making right. enough money, you could end up in a spot where you run up against a wall and you have to go get a job or do something else. So there's that, it is, you're constantly towing the line about when do I make the leap? Am I close enough? Is it? And I think that's probably one of the most difficult decisions for anybody to make on that. Um, so once you did commit, how long did it take for you to realize, okay, this was the right decision? Yeah. So first I didn't commit right away. I always joke that I did what everyone does when they hear really good advice and that's to wait six months to do anything with it. Um, and cause I like kind of thought about and pondered it for quite a while and then, uh, and then convert his revenue, you know, as recurring revenue does, I find a lot of people don't know this, but if left alone, it does not continue to recur perfectly. It declines yeah. <laughs> at a pretty steady pace, uh, which is really depressing. Uh, but, you know, so it declined down to 1300 a month. And at this point, you know, it wasn't even covering basic costs to maintain it, you know, let alone new development. If anything, and it was so, probably at a point where there was more reason to give up on it than to double down on it. Yeah. So how on earth at that point did you make the decision to double down versus quit? So I decided that I needed a framework to make this decision because I needed to actually make a decision. And I was tired of, you know, for the last year and a half, I've been like, yeah, maybe this will work, maybe not. And I hadn't made a decision as to whether or not I was going to make it work and really put the effort into it. As, as he said, uh, the time, money, and attention, basically. Um, so the little framework that I came up with was to ask two simple questions. Um, one, do I still want this as much today as the day that I started? Right. Cause a lot can change in your life in yeah. two years or more. And just because you wanted something a couple years ago, doesn't mean you still want it now. And if you don't still want it, like that just makes the decision easy, mm-hmm. you know, and especially anyone probably getting into building software, they, they have talent, hopefully either on the development side or on the marketing side or products, you know, in some way. So there's lots of good things you can do with your time. 
And so if you don't still want this, like move on to something else. For me, I was like, yeah, I, you know, I have these books and courses. That's all going just fine. I can go down that road, but I still wanted to run a software company and I wanted that new challenge. And, um, I really wanted to take it to the next level. So the answer to that question was yes, I want it just as much as the day I started. So I moved on to question two, which was, have I given ConvertKit every possible chance to succeed? Because if the answer to that is yes, then like it's not the right product. Mm-hmm. It's not the right, uh, the right market. You're not the right person to do it. You know, like you've given it your all. It didn't work. And it's time to call it and move on. And when I look back over my last couple of years, I went, no, I can't in like, I can't honestly say that, yeah, I've given this my all and it didn't work. I can say that I've, there's a lot of weeks where I've given it like 20% of the possible effort. And so now there's a big disconnect between how much I say I want something and then my actions. Yeah. And so looking at that, I was like, I I saw that disconnect and there's still opportunity there. And so that's when I decided, okay, it's time to double down. And so what doubling down looked like for me was I took all of our savings, um, which uh, we still had more money invested in like a wealth front account for stocks and that kind of thing. But all of our savings, which was $50,000, um, and put that into the company. And then, uh, I'd been hiring contractors just to work on things part time. And so there wasn't, since I'm not a developer, you know, I can, I can write a bunch of front end code and I can do design, but since I'm not a developer, there wasn't like that dedicated product focus and someone really working hard to carry it through who really owned that whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I hired, uh, one of my favorite developers I've ever worked with over the years at different software companies, a guy named David Wheeler, uh, to come on as our, you know, kind of founding engineer. Um, and, and then I started selling. So I'd always tried to find scalable ways to grow. So, uh, you know, content marketing or partnerships or all these other things. And this time I just said like, I'm going to sell. And so I made lists of, uh, well, and we also picked the niche of, uh, at the time it was email marketing for authors. And then we later pivoted a little bit to be email marketing for professional bloggers. But by going after a niche, um, I was able to make lists of potential customers and then just email them and say, Hey, can I get on a Skype call and demo this for you and just be relentless about selling? Um, so I didn't know, well, our expenses pretty quickly went up significantly, you know, to about, I think they went up to about 10,000 a month right away. And then gradually climbed to 13,000 a month, you know, on a 1300 a month in revenue. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was doing the math of, you know, 50,000 declining like this, but revenue, you know, where, where does that match? Yep. And so I didn't have an exact number of when I was going to call it, um, of like, this isn't working. Um, I guess it was going to be when I ran out of money, <laughs> I was going to make that decision. Uh, but you know, I sold like $300 worth of MRR from direct sales that first month. And so we went from. 1300 to 1600 and then the month after that I sold 400 and so we went up to 2000 um and so that was October 2014 and by March uh 2015 we were at 5000 a month in revenue 
which is my original goal. It just took <laughs> a year and a half longer than expected. Um, and then, and we actually did run out of money and that was a couple months later in May, 2015. Uh, and we were at about 8,000 a month in revenue, 9,000 a month in revenue. Um, and ran out of money. I considered a bunch of different options. I ended up laying off one person on the team, um, uh, who was doing customer support and a lot of the other work in there, helping with a lot of the administrative work. And we ended up being able to bring him back on three months later. But, you know, that was the thing. I had to get, cut the expenses from 13000 down to 9000 so that we could not go broke. Because during that time, I'd sold off all of my investments and all that kind of thing just to live on. Um, but so we, we went, we got down pretty low on <laughs> financially, uh, but never like went really far in the negative. Um, and, it just kind of kept climbing from there. And then later things took off. So we probably relied entirely on direct sales up to 15,000 MRR. Uh, and then like affiliates and referrals started to kick in after that. But even to today, we still do a lot of direct sales. So on direct sales, because that's something that so many of us just hate the idea of. Um, mm -hmm. But the reality is, too, I'm guessing it wasn't pure sales, right? When you're on the phone call, you're getting feedback. You're learning where to focus, oh, yeah. what features. Um, can you kind of talk about how those calls balance in terms of actual sales effort versus actual research effort? I think, uh, I don't think they're two different things. Okay. Um, cause that conversation, it always starts with, Hey, what are, what are your frustrations? Yeah. Right. You use MailChimp, you use campaign monitor, whatever it is, what bothers you about them? And you're telling me and I'm writing it all down. I'm mm -hmm. taking notes. And then when someone says, they list off all this stuff. Oh, I'm sick of paying for duplicate subscribers with MailChimp. It's really a pain to set up automations. There's no tags. You know, in that case, I'm saying those are all the same frustrations I had with MailChimp. That's why I built ConvertKit. And so, um, and people will throw out other things. And I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Oh, that's a good point. So it's product research, but then also, you know, I don't come in saying you should sign up for ConvertKit. Here's why. You know, instead you let them talk about frustrations and then you answer that. Um, so I think research and sales are the same thing. Um, well, and that's a really good point too, because I think so many people think of sales and they think of it as I'm going to call this person up and I'm going to tell them to buy my product when yeah. the best sales you can possibly do is to call somebody up and say, what sucks for you right now? Right. Listen to them and then say, okay, that's great. I think I can help you solve those problems. It's not here mm -hmm. by my product. It's here's how my product can maybe help you after you've listened to them. And right. that makes all the difference in the world in sales. Uh, and obviously yeah. the research bonus is there too. Yeah. And then whenever you're selling purely online, people are rejecting you every single day and not telling you why. Yeah. So if I put up a blog post that says, this is why ConvertKit's amazing, or here's how to solve your seven greatest email marketing problems. Oh, and it happens to pitch ConvertKit, you know? Um, someone reads through that and goes, oh, that's interesting. And they click through to learn more or to buy. And then for whatever reason, they hit the back button. Mm -hmm. And that's the equivalent of me saying, hey, you, will you buy ConvertKit? And you like staring at me awkwardly <laughs> and then slowly backing away without saying anything. Yep. And then like turning and leaving, yeah. which is entirely socially unacceptable. Like 
you're not allowed to do that. If I say, hey, you should buy this thing, you have to say, like, ask a couple clarifying questions. And then you have to say, like, well, here's why I'm not going to buy it. Like, you have to give a reason. And so when you're selling online, all you know is that 25 people visited your sales page and zero purchased. Mm -hmm. But if you have 25 individual conversations, made up or not, all 25 of those people have to give you a reason that they're not going to buy your product. Yeah. Well, and and that's powerful. I would say it even goes a step further because in hindsight, I think one of my biggest mistakes with Sifter was I had plenty of feedback coming in via email, lots of suggestions, and mm-hmm. we had just enough traction that people cared enough to, to make feature requests and that sort of thing. And it was one thing to hear those via email, but every time I got on the phone with somebody, I would get a dozen other things that were just small enough and just annoying enough that by themselves weren't a big deal, but in a phone call, it was, well, this bothers me, this bothers me, this bothers me, and they were all easy to fix, but they weren't big enough for people to mention via email. And so that face-to-face conversation just solves so many problems and helps you see things that you (laughs) otherwise would never know about or never notice, or nobody would just take the time to tell you. Yeah. That that's absolutely true. And then the other thing is whenever we build these products, we, uh, at least for me, I think this would be perfect for so-and-so, you know, like you have all these people out there who you're who think like I, they would be perfect for this product. If only they knew about it or would buy it or would yeah. you know, come stumble across a, a Google ad about it or something like that. And it's like, if you know who those people are or you have that avatar in your head, then go call them up and say, hey, I built something that I think is perfect for you, and here's why. Well, and, and to be fair, I think in your case too, having a little bit of credibility from your books and your previous work made it easier to get those conversations. Definitely. Because I certainly, you know, I remember getting a lot of outreach, and I'm sure plenty of people have, you know, read people trying outreach. They're like, nobody responds to me. Nobody gives me the time of day. And so it, it's not quite that easy and it certainly helps to build an audience and build some credibility ahead of time and then it makes those much easier uh it just makes the emails easier you're going to get more of a response and you'll be able to have those conversations in the first place so right it's not super easy but it's worth it yeah and so i have posters behind me on the wall that are uh some of the uh I, i don't even know what to call them they're not necessarily converted core values maybe they are Um, but one of them is teach everything, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's how you build that credibility. And so it's one thing to say, like, I'm going to build a software company and, um, you know, I set off in my own quiet world and go do that. It's another thing to be public about all of it, to let everyone know what your goal and your mission is and your progress along the way. Mm -hmm. Cause when I published that article saying, I'm launching the web app challenge. I'm my goal is to go from zero to 5,000 a month in revenue in six months. I'm going to blog about the entire thing. The number of people that came on alongside and said, great, if you need anything, let me know. Um, I mean, I had emails from like Ryan Carson at Treehouse. Uh, I mean, that's how I met Heaton Shaw was he, I, I think either emailed me or posted a comment on that article and said, cool. I like to help people who are, in motion. So if there's ever anything you need, let me know. Um, and so that was so much easier. I got a lot of help from Amy Hoy in the early days. Uh, and she said something about, 
she was referring to uh, how frustrating it is to help someone who's not going to do anything yeah. with that. And so she said something like, I have all the time in the world to help people who are in motion. You know, because then a little bit of guidance, you just change that and they're going to execute on it. Um, so really, you have to publicly prove that you're going to make this happen. And then other people will say, like, I will happily give you 30 minutes or this introduction or that kind of thing I, in order to make it happen. I never thought about it that way. But the in motion thing is just a great way to look at it because I like with Sifter, I was fascinated with bug trackers and talked to people about them for years. But until I started creating mockups and sharing them with no observable goal, just beyond sharing it, that's when people started coming out of the woodwork with suggestions and encouragement and like, you're going to do something with this, right? And it makes a lot of sense. And I think that's probably a great way to overcome if you don't necessarily have the credibility yet, but you put forth some effort and you put something out there that shows you're making progress and working towards a goal. And then people see that they're like, Oh yeah, I'll have a call with this person. They're clearly doing interesting things. And, um, so that, that could be a great way to overcome that challenge. And to, to do it all publicly, yeah. like yeah. in the early days, I was fascinated by how I could write about like the first article I ever wrote that was popular was about how I made $19,000 on the app store mm -hmm. well, while learning to code was the full title. So a little, little clickbait in there. Um, and that one took off like crazy. And I had, I was having conversations with all these people who were running businesses doing half a million or a couple million dollars a year on the app store. And they were in some way, uh, not looking up to me, but like their business was at a high level. Mine was at a very small level, but because I wrote about it, I got to play on their level. Yeah. And the same way that like with ConvertKit, you know, in those early days, I mean, I gave a talk at MicroCon when ConvertKit had gotten to 2,500 a month and it was just an attendee talk. Um, but there were so many people there who were, you know, at 10,000, 50,000 a month in revenue. And all of a sudden, because you're sharing and I was like, why am I the one talking when like you've done so much more than I ever have? Yeah. Um, but it like elevates the level to get out there and be willing to talk about it publicly. And so I've always had that mindset of whatever I'm learning, whatever, uh, whatever I'm working on, just teach that, share it publicly. One of the other posters says work in public mm -hmm. and that's just, Hey, I learned this thing. Hey, I built this thing. Here's how I built it. Um, also this is where, where I'm going. And anytime you read an article and someone's saying, this is where I'm going, these are the steps to make it happen. Uh, then you just, you just want that person to succeed. Yeah. Well, like there, there are Kickstarter projects that like, I don't care about the project at all, but when someone spells it out of, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. This is the story behind it, et cetera. You're just like, cool. There's a $50 contribution, you know, and it's the ones where you're selecting like no reward, you know, cause you don't care about whatever they're making, but yeah. you want to help people who are in motion. Yeah. There was a thought on the tip of my tongue and I've lost <laughs> it. All right. Well, I'll skip that one. Um, so, one of the other things I want to talk about is when ConvertKit was getting started and Drip because mm -hmm. they were born around the same time, serving very similar audiences. Uh, how did that unfold in terms of um, 
And, you know, so many people were scared of, oh, there's a competitor, there's a big player or whatever. Right. And Drip kind of took off faster, mm -hmm. uh, but you were ultimately kind of able to catch up. And when you're going through a trough like that, and there's a very similar product that's very solid, uh, that's taking off, like all the more reason to give up, like, oh, why not just go use their product instead of dra dragging myself through all this? How did that go? Yeah. I always thought it was interesting in the early days that people compared ConvertKit and Drip so much from a competition perspective because they would say like, ooh, you're getting into a competitive market like Drip's in that market. And I was like, no, I'm getting a competitive market because MailChimp is in that market, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and Campaign Monitor and Fusionsoft and Aweber and iContact yeah. and Constant Contact, you know? Uh, and so people looked at like our two little tiny bootstrap companies, you know, doing like a couple grand a month and maybe drip at the time, like six months after launch, I think it was doing like 10 or 12 grand a month. And then there's like MailChimp doing 250 million a year. Uh, <laughs> and so then it's like, there's a ton of room for everyone. Um, but also the two products didn't start as competition. And so I uh, drip was email marketing for SaaS companies when it started and so Drips, I believe, started four weeks before ConvertKit, mm -hmm. um, at least the first mention of it publicly. Um, and I actually, I didn't understand what what Drip was for, because um, if I probably would have used it if uh, the marketing had made sense to me. There's actually a Twitter conversation somewhere between Rob and I where I'm asking him questions of like, hey, does it do this? And he's like, no, it doesn't. No, you know, because I'm trying to find a tool to switch from from Mailchimp, but if someone's building it, then like, great, I'll do that. Um, and I walked away from that conversation going, oh, okay, this isn't for me, and it's not going to solve my problems. And then a month later, I decided to build something that was for me and would solve my problems. Um, so ConvertKit started in like the info product space, um, and then uh, and Drip started in the SaaS product space. So we went after two totally different markets. And then later, Drip pivoted into marketing automation and, and like broadened to like SaaS, info products, whoever. And we just stayed in like, we switched from talking about info products to uh, like professional bloggers, stayed in the same space, but kind of went deeper and then added all that automation functionality. And so it probably wasn't until a year, a year and a half in that we actually started going after the same customer base. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely frustrating. I think, I think at the end of that six months, when we'd hit two thousand a month in revenue, I think at the time Drip was at like twelve thousand a month. But what's interesting is you can go back and listen to the startups for the rest of us podcast, and they hit a trough at the same time. Um, of they had this initial success, and I think it was the nine or twelve thousand a month somewhere in there, and then found that the market. That they weren't a good fit, uh, that they didn't have product market fit. Mm -hmm. And so then that's when they made the pivot into like more true automation rather than just email marketing for SaaS. And so they had this spike and then this, you know, flatline or very slow growth. And then they, they started taking off again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, and cause then later, you know, like I think April 2015, so Oh, that's like coming coming up on two years. Um, we were at five thousand a month in revenue. You know, as we're starting to take off, and they were at I think thirty six thousand a month 
Um, and then from then on, we just like our worst growth month was like 18% monthly growth. And we continued that all the way up to a year later. I think we were, um, like 50,000 MRR larger than them. Um, and who knows what's happened since they've been acquired by lead pages. Yeah. Uh, cause that's like lead pages is a big marketing machine. They mm-hmm. have 40,000 customers or whatever, and <laughs> plenty of millions to put behind it. Um, but it's interesting. I think the, the audience segment plays a big role. Uh, we accidentally picked probably one of the best possible markets by going after bloggers because you know, if I get, if I have a small business product and I get you to use it and you love it, you might tell three or four of your friends like, Hey, this thing's pretty great. But if I get a high profile blogger to use it and they love it, they'll tell a hundred thousand of their closest friends. Yep. Um, and so like our affiliate programs been able to do well, whereas in other industries, it just affiliate programs don't work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting. But I don't worry about drip. I worry about like the bigger products like uh, the MailChimps um, or like an active campaign that's uh, has a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. and that's I love that affiliate marketing has worked well for you when, like you said, so many people are like, "Oh, we'll just throw in affiliate marketing," but like some things just aren't naturally shareable or don't have an audience that can or will share, and so it's a great example of the fact that just because an idea worked for another company doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Just because an idea right. didn't work for another company doesn't mean it's not going to work for you. And I think sometimes I know I always struggle with that was, Oh, well that's not going to work because so-and-so tried it and it didn't work. Cause like, well, how did they try it? Are they in the right industry? The same audience, the same, you know, there's so many variables that can really affect which mm-hmm. tactics are successful. Um, one of the other questions now that you're bigger and it happened quickly I mean, basically mm-hmm. two years. Uh, is there anything you miss from the days that ConvertKit was smaller? Oh, I don't think so. Really? <laughs> um, let's see, things that I miss. Probably being more embedded in the product and working on that side of it because my background is in design and user experience. Um, though I've actually spent the last two months leading our engineering team and being very heavily involved there, and so that's been a lot of fun. Um, but there's an in-between time where I just wasn't very involved in that process. I was very heavily on the sales and marketing and growth side of things. Um, yeah, so I, I like being able to still, you know, write some code myself and design out a new feature or, uh, you know, spend three or four hours and ship a pull request and, uh, like make the product better than it was when I got up this morning. And so that doesn't happen very often anymore. Yeah. Well, it's a lot simpler in the early days, I think. Yeah. And it's just like, look, I can kind of do whatever I want because there's 50 customers and whatever. (laughs) Um, But now like one little bug, there's 10,000 customers. And so it's a big deal now. Yeah. Um, On on other things, I don't think there's much else that, that I miss. Like it's really fun to show up to a conference or something like that and people go, oh, yeah. I use ConvertKit or like my mom, I had all my family over for uh, dinner two nights ago and my mom was saying, Hey, I was reading a book the other day and ConvertKit was mentioned in it. I was like, what? (laughs) You know? And so that kind of stuff is fun. And I just don't worry about money in the same way. 
And so uh, the whole journey was a lot harder than I expected, uh, but I don't really miss the early days. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Um, So looking back, uh, it's kind of two part question to wrap it up. What was the most painful or the lowest point in the whole process for you? Let's see. Um, oh man. I mean, running out of money, that sucked. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we had traction then. And so it wasn't so much as a, a, a money problem. I mean, it was a money problem. But whenever I think of problems, I always think of them in terms of does this get solved with time? Mm-hmm. Right. So if I'm going to stress out about something, does this get better or worse with time? And so in our case, with the money problem, we were growing. And yes, our and so our burn rate was getting lower each month. And so that problem was getting less significant with time. And so like that's a problem where you're like, okay, I need to worry about that because it's a real problem. But it's not that big of a deal. Whereas the problems that get worse with time, those are the ones where you're like, okay, I have to fix that. Um, so that was pretty that was pretty stressful. I think making the decision to put all of our savings into ConvertKit uh, at the time of doubling down, that was, that was definitely stressful. And then I think the first time that I had to fire someone, um, you know, especially with a remote team, I didn't want to like hop on a Skype call or a zoom call and say like, look, I'm letting you go, especially for someone who had done great work and had been a big part of, everything in the early days. And so I ended up, well, and it was especially hard because not everyone on the leadership team agreed that letting this person go was the right yeah. move. Uh, so all those internal people things is, is hard. When, when firing this person, what I ended up deciding to do was, uh, yeah, they live one state over. And so I caught the, uh, 6 AM flight out there you know, I texted them the night before and said, Hey, I'm going to be in your city, uh, tomorrow. Can you meet up for coffee? <laughs> can we grab breakfast? Uh, you know, I was like, sure. What time works? Like 8am. Great. And I caught the 6am flight over, met them there, you know, let them go, thank them for everything, had some good conversations. And then a couple hours later flew home. And that ended up being a really good decision because, and it's one that I don't talk about much, but, um, I think it's it's showing to that person and to the rest of the team because we were at like 10 or 11 people then. Um, they're like, hey, I didn't make this decision lightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took it really seriously. I'm not going to say like, you know what? You're not a good fit. You're gone. Yeah. Like to let this person go, I actually got on a plane and, you know. I mean, it really only took me a, it took me a day because I went there and back same day. But like – I think it showed that I valued each person on the team. And if I was going to let someone go, I was going to do it right. And, yeah. Uh, no, that's huge. Like that. But I stressed out about that so much. Oh, I'm sure. So that was probably the lowest point. Well, and I, I talked to Josh uh, about bare metrics the other day. And for him, it was kind of the same thing when they financially were kind of struggling and had to, everybody took a pay cut. And he said that was some of the hardest. It's always the personnel issues, the people that I think everybody gets oh, yeah. most stressed about as the company grows. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's the thing I was talking to, uh, Jason Cohen from WP engine and they're at 450 employees now. And 
I was in Austin and I, you know, went to their office to meet with Jason and just hang out and catch up because, you know, I'd met him years before at MicroConf and like right when ConvertKit was starting. Um, and he just said like whatever people problems you have at 10, 10 employees, uh, the ratio stays the same, <laughs> you know, of problems per employee. Now just go up to 450 and beyond and just know that whatever problem is like the biggest edge case that you think you'd never encounter, you're going to encounter that like yeah. three times a year. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so you just have to get good at it. Probably one of the best moves I've ever made was hiring a director of operations to handle so much of that and all the business stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's been quite the journey, but, uh, it's fun to be at the, the, the stage where we're at and, yeah. And to have the momentum. So then the one final question, which oftentimes pivots off of that, but this may not, if you could go back and tell yourself, you know, what is this now? Almost three years ago total. Yeah. Almost four, almost four years ago. So what would you tell yourself to do differently? Yeah. Uh, to double down sooner, like to realize that I'm in this in between state of, I haven't given up, but I'm also not, serious about it and I'm not working hard to make it work and giving it my all. Um, and you can give something your all, even if you only have 20 hours a week. Yeah. Um, you know, you're working full time on this and it's a side project, you know, and I just wasn't, yeah. I was like trying to, I had these projects for ConvertKit and I was moving them forward and you know, yeah. So it's at whatever not, pace. It's not necessarily quit your job and take a leap of faith so much as if you've got free time, give it all your free time and, you know, put yourself into it. Yeah. And take it really seriously. And so I wish I would have asked that question, those two questions of, do I still want this as much today as the day that I started? And have I given this every possible chance to succeed? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it may not be useful to ask yourself that every single day, um, but maybe every week and certainly every month, you know, and reevaluate those side projects and ask those two questions. Do I still want this? <laughs> if yes, does my effort match my desire? Yeah. Uh, and be willing to pull the plug sooner rather than later. Well, and it's another, that was more or less the thought process I had with Sifter was after going through everything I had gone through, I was at a point where it was like, this isn't what I want right now. I can see myself yep. wanting to do this again someday, but right now this is just not, my heart's not in it anymore. Like I was in a totally different place and it wasn't anything to do with Sifter. It was just, I was so mentally and physically yep. in a different place. And then that's basically what I had to do was ask myself, like, am I really doing the right thing or am I just continuing this because, you know, I've been doing it for so long, I'm not going to consider anything else. And it turned out that's kind of what I was doing. So, yeah. And it's not about some, particular like i built a SaaS company badge of honor it's like what do i want yeah because we're all skilled talented people we all we can all pay our mortgages through a handful of different ways like yeah. you have any experience in software like you could pay your rent you know yeah um and so it's really about what do i want what makes me happy what do i want to pursue and go for that and don't base it on uh, you know, that someone else says that you have to run a software company or you have to have this style of business or you have to, you know, any of those things. Um, so yeah, I like that approach. Well, that's a pretty good note to end on. 
All right. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm sure lots of other people get a lot out of this as well. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.